Is there a common sense approach to compassion we can all agree on? Tonight, I'm sitting down with a leader in the Australian Liberty Movement to explore issues such as a universal basic income, minimum wage, welfare, and how to best combat poverty while advocating for smaller government and lower taxes. I'm Dave Pello, and this is Pello Talk. Oh, it's not enough to do nothing. It's time for us to do something. Dr. John Humphreys is an economist who has worked in academia, government, consulting, and think tanks. He has a PhD from the University of Queensland and has been a sessional lecturer there and elsewhere since 2014. Outside of academia, previous employers include the Australian Treasury, Centre for International Economics, including consulting jobs for the World Bank and ASEAN, and the Centre for Independent Studies, CIS. John has published peer-reviewed articles, books and book chapters on topics such as education, tax and welfare, international trade, political economics and public finance. In addition to his economics career, John has also been active in the public square. He founded the Australian Libertarian Society and the Liberal Democrats and co-founded the Friedman Conference and Australian Liberty Awards. He has also served as an executive director for the Economic Society of Australia in Queensland, Deputy Director of the Australian Taxpayers Alliance, Board Member of the UQ Senate, and Director of the Circle Project Charity. He's also a qualified Justice of the Peace, a scuba dive master, and a recreational pilot. From 2015 to 17, John was based primarily in Cambodia, working on his education charity called the Human Capital Project, lectured at Zaman University and the Royal University of Law and Economics, and also launched the Professional Research Institute for Management and Economics. In 2016, John was awarded a knighthood in the Cambodian Royal Order of Monoceraphon for his contributions to education. Thank you so much for coming into the studio today. You flatter me, Dave, but thank you. Tell me a little bit about your charity work in Asia, or not even charity work, but uh, I mean, do you call it charity? Yes, as a shorthand. because I don't normally want to get into very long conversations about it every time I raise it. Uh, so yep. this is the Human Capital Project. It's a, a non-government, non-profit organization run in Cambodia, or run out of Australia to Cambodia. Uh, it's an alternative financing system to send poor kids to university. So that's the elevator pitch. Yep. Uh, but it uses an innovative financial instrument called a personal equity finance. The idea is we fund the student to go to university. Uh, and they've signed a contract uh, whereby once they graduate, they agree to pay a percentage of their income back for a fixed number of years. Uh, So that money then doesn't go to my pocket. That money is used to reinvest in the next round of students. So to some degree, you could describe it as like a pass-it-forward scheme. And that's, for the charity element, that's the interesting part. For the finance element, the interesting part is that we use a personal equity instrument instead of a debt instrument. So it's not just a loan. If you give someone a loan, they pay you back the original loan amount, potentially plus interest. Right, so most people understand that concept. Mm-hmm. With personal equity, how much you repay has nothing to do with how much benefit you received and everything to do with how much income you earn in the future. So uh, if someone graduates university through Human Capital Project, through this system, uh, and they don't get a job, they just pay zero. Then the time, say five years, the time elapses, and that's it. They just never repay. Right? So it's not a loan. There's no fixed amount they have to repay. Right. If they don't earn money, they pay 10% of zero. which is zero. If they earn a normal amount of money, then they will pay back an amount that looks probably similar to repaying a loan. 
But if they earn a lot of money, they pay 10% of a lot, so they pay back much more than a loan. Okay. So what this does is uh, it changes the who holds the risk of different outcomes. So this is for people who've studied finance, it's a pretty standard discussion of the difference between debt and equity instruments. Mm -hmm. uh, but normally that's applied to investing in a business, not normally funding a person. Fascinating. So this is you know, funding a person through university using personal equity. So and so what kind of um, qualifications do you, rec like what kind of uh, risk analysis do you do on the people who you're investing in? So they, if we were to do this primarily for the reason of doing personal equity, uh, we would be wanting to try and make sure that maximize the chance of the person getting a, a good income. But this is uses personal equity, but the underlying motivation was to help poor people in Cambodia. Mm. So uh, realistically, we're dealing with some of the poorest people in the regional areas going to regional universities. We're not dealing with the best of the best. Uh, we have to be realistic about the standards we set and just accept that there's going to be some amount of failure and dropout uh, in, in how we do things. So we, the, our minimum requirement is just that they, um, they, they pass school and if we've got a fixed budget in a year, they, they come in and if they've passed school, we just pick the best students up to when we run out of money. Right. And that's going to include well, some people... Well, that's a qualification standard. You're still looking for the best of your applicants. So two things, best uh, and that they actually need it. So we often make the pitch at the beginning, if they have another funding option, they should use that because uh, the money we provide isn't just free money. Yeah. They are on the hook on a contract to pay a percentage of their future income. Yeah. If they expect to do well uh, and they can get their uncle or something like that to, to pay for their degree, they'd be better off. So actually my original pitch when I go to Cambodia is all the students who show up saying they want uh, personal equity finance, I try to talk them out of it. Great. And anyone who I can su successfully talk out of probably isn't the poorest of the poor. So I only want the people who have no other option. This is a, a good solution that's for brilliant. people with no other option, and it can get the people with no other option into university in a way that's hopefully sustainable. Because yep. as I said before, the idea is the previous graduates pay for the next round, a sustainable system uh, that can help the people fall in between. It sounds like the best of capitalism working. Uh, it, it, I like it. I mean, I like the idea. Personal equity has been an idea that's been around for a while. Uh, we've mm. actually got a, an element of the discussion in Australia the HEC system is an income contingent loan. Income contingent loans actually came out of the discussion of personal equity many decades ago. Mm. Uh, and also it's, it's a relatively good part of the Australian education system is what the I, HEC What system. I like about this is there's no obligation on the taxpayer um, because, you know, one, I guess one of the discussions within Christianity is tax versus generosity. Um, and both people are, both camps are motivated by looking after um, the poor amongst us, those who can't help themselves, um, closing the gaps and making sure that there's a, a social safety net. Uh, I would be in the camp of saying compulsory generosity isn't generosity. It's, it's just compulsory. Um, and what I love about what you're doing is that there's people who of their own volition and of their own wealth have said there's a solution that I want to be part of without any arm behind their back, gun to their head. Um, they've just said I want to be generous and involved in that um, for the purpose of helping other people. Is it tax deductible for people in Australia who donated to that? Uh, no longer. Not at the moment. We're going through a bit of a change at the moment. HCP is actually merging with another small charity that does something very similar. Yep. So I can... Uh, take advantage of a, a bunch of new, young, energetic, dedicated people to, to take over a bunch of the work that yep. I'm not getting done now. So right. uh, we're, we're changing process and we'll have to uh, reapply and try to re-get tax deductibility status. But okay. uh, at the moment we're in transition. So hold off anyone who's generous, 
Um, we can't actually take your money just yet. So do you want them to go to a website or anything right now? Or you know, maybe this video is being viewed a year from recording time. Where should they go for more information if they want to be involved? So for the future, it'll be Bodia Group. And I can't remember the URL off the top of my head, but Bodia, B-O-D-I-A, Bodia mm-hmm. Group. If you we'll put it uh, Google in the show that, notes. then it'll, um, it should the show up. So that'll be where we're pursuing these projects uh, moving into the future. So uh, you're right that this was uh, initiated as a civil society project, and, and I agree maybe we can discuss the, uh, the benefits of voluntary community over forced community. I don't know how you call that community, but uh, I yeah. agree with that. However, uh, and this isn't to, to disagree, it's to build on, uh, there's the enticing possibility that something like personal equity could switch out of the community or civil society sector <clears throat> and just into the for-profit sector. So if you can uh, make an incentive for people to actually be investing their, their funds in personal equity for, and getting a return, you could make that profitable. Then you open up a massive market, trillions of dollars of money that wants to go into a market dedicated to providing funding for people who can't afford to go to uni. I mean, yeah. that would really, uh, this is a cliche thing for us capitalist types and free market economists to say, but one of the, the best solutions to poverty is to find a way where you can uh, fill missing markets and allow those markets to work to, in terms of the investor's perspective, accidentally end up helping people. And if at the moment it's not accidental, people investing in HCP and Bodia Group are doing it intentionally. Yeah. But the, the gold standard of this is if we could uh, build it up to a point where investors said, look, I don't really care about helping poor people. This is a good investment. And if we could make that argument convincingly enough, you mm. can get millions, billions, trillions of dollars flowing into the market to fill the gaps to help the it, most uneducated. The fundamental premise of capitalism is that you make a profit out of filling somebody else's need. And, and one of the, the bits that's uh, missing there for missing part of the discussion is the missing markets. I mean, this is one of the best ways to be able to help people that we haven't thought of yet. Find a market that doesn't exist yet. Uh, and when that market does exist, we look back and we go, oh, great, that market's really helping people. Before the market existed, it was really hard to see its need yeah. because it didn't exist yet. It's really hard to see things that don't exist yet. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, the ideal thing here was if the personal equity markets could get to the size where people were joining it for self-interested reasons, uh, that would be a wonderful outcome, I think. We're not there yet. There's uh, various in, in the developed world uh, regulatory roadblocks. The government uh, treats uh, it differently if you give someone a loan for university as opposed to if you give someone personal equity for university. So it's just treated differently for regulation and tax purposes, which makes it hard for this to kickstart without a bit of change on the government's behalf. Mm -hmm. And in developing countries, there's high transaction costs, which can make it hard to to scale. Um, So at the moment, it hasn't happened, but it's a nice dream for people like myself to to daydream about and talk about it. I, I firmly believe in a right to education, but I do not believe there's any such thing as a right to a free education. Uh, and certainly one of the problems I think we have in Australia right now is the belief, the popular belief, that the government owes us higher education. Um, it's, it's been completely free in the past and there's reducing funding for it um, recently and, and certainly currently. Um, but I have just played in my mind, and I don't think I've arrived at a, at a solution, but I, I would love to see employers subsidising their future employees' um, higher educations. Uh, the problem is making sure that the employers get a return on their investment um, and that the, the workers would then be uh, you know, committed to that employer long enough for them to make, make their money back and, and make it incentivized yeah, the locking well. contracts yeah so i think one of the ways that i know this works is the australian defense force 
the Australian Defence Force will educate you, put you through university, give you a great degree, but you owe them a fixed term of employment. I'm not sure if it's five years or, or ten years, but um, you are working. If you've gradu graduated from ADFA, then you will be working for the Defence Force for a certain number of years until they've they've got their money back. Yeah, so it can work. A couple of things about what you said. Firstly, I'm not sure how you're using the word right. Um, I tend to shy away from it because so many conversations that you want to be about the underlying substance education policy end up getting distracted into this uh, sidetrack about how you, what do you mean by right? Now we have a right for this, but what does that really mean? Yeah. So I, I have a theory about how the word should be used, but so many people use the word differently that I'll just sidestep it. But I'm not sure what your a right to education, but not a right to the a free education. The way I would use it, um, would Maybe be, we should sidestep it. <laughs> well, well, what I mean is that the perceived right to a free education is then an obligation on everybody else to provide I, it. I agree with that, and that's why I wouldn't use, say you have a right to an education. So I'm not sure how you're using it to say that we should. But I, I think the underlying point is education policy, and, and I'll give this uh, argument for why, especially with higher education, um, the, the government shouldn't be subsidising it. Uh, now, I think the argument, what, the underlying motivation of people who ask for a free university education is that they want to make sure everyone can always access it. And I very much agree with that. I set up a charity along those lines, right? So I very much agree with that goal, but the issue there is access. So you need to make sure people, no matter what their background, can always access university. Access doesn't mean free, right? A loan or personal equity is a way to be able to access it. And we have in Australia a system of income contingent loans called HEX. Mm. So as long as we have a HEX system that everyone can access, the access problem is fine. Then the issue is, should we subsidize it? And the way to bring that into stark relief, I think, is to consider if, if the taxpayer is subsidizing it, who is that? Right? So some of the people who benefit from university will pay tax, so they're subsidizing themselves. What's the point of that? That's churn. So the only real subsidy here is people who don't go to university pay extra tax to subsidize the degrees of people who do go to uni. Mm. So what we're saying is future accountants and lawyers, uh, their life is going to be so difficult, we need to make sure that people who didn't go to uni cross-subsidize those successful future accountants and lawyers. So if you look at it in the terms of their whole life, not looking at while I'm 19, I'm poor, yes, but you're going to be a lawyer and you're going to be successful. Look at your whole life. Mm. Do we want to be getting non-university graduates cross-subsidizing university graduates? Does that seem equitable? Like if your goal was equity? And, and you know what? I think there might be an argument for that because we, there's, a, there's certain skills we need in Australia. And, and you know, one of the things I do you believe... You think we're short of university graduates at the moment? Well, no, it, it's more that if we... You know, brain drain is a real um, sovereign risk. We, we don't want our best and brightest people either not being the best and brightest or taking their, their skills and talents elsewhere. We, we need quality services in Australia. I think worse than what you suggested is when our, our future non-blue-collar you know, people who haven't gone to university are subsidising the degrees of feminist dance theory, well, yeah. so there's two feminist interpretive dance theory degrees, which are completely useless to society. Well, there's two ways I could have spun it. One is, do you want the people who didn't go to uni to cross-subsidise future rich people? And I don't think there's a good case for that. Realistically, right. future rich people are going to get the vast majority of the benefits for their own education. Yes. Therefore, they already have the incentives to get the education. Uh, your, your smart, successful people aren't going to quit uni on principle to spite us because their hex bill is slightly higher. But isn't there so a need th for the bulk of future poor people to have really good doctors and make sure that there's... But that's what I'm saying. You're not going to get people refusing to become doctors because their hex bill is higher. 
Right? Their personal benefit is going to far exceed their hex cost, so it's going to make sense for them to become doctors. So they're not going to just decide to become beach bums and unemployed and poor to spite argument. me because they don't like my economic argument. Right? So yep. most of the benefits to education go to the recipient of the education. So what about a so question got like teachers, where we actually have a shortage of, of good teachers in, in universities? Uh, well, I mean, you have to go to how the education market works, and the education market isn't a particularly private market, uh, which is normally how you get prices to clear. Uh, then, this is going a little bit off topic here, you've got to open the question of what is the correct amount of education required to be a teacher? Do you actually need to spend 10 years at university studying the nuance of, of every beetle before you're allowed to teach people history? Yep. Uh, so I think there might be over-credentialism going on, but that, that's the nature of a, a non-free market in education, which takes us well off uh, our topic. I just wanted to finish on the thought, one way of framing it is, do you get non-university graduates to cross-subsidize the degree of future rich people who don't need the subsidy? The other way is, do you get people who didn't go to uni to cross-subsidize the hobbies of people who are just doing things purely for hobby reasons? I mean, yeah. if you're studying something that's not going to uh, pay off financially, then it's not human capital you're investing in. It's a hobby. Now, hobbies are great. If mm. you have a, a hobby in studying lesbian dance theory, great, to each their own. But your hobbies shouldn't be cross-subsidized by people who didn't go to uni just because uh, the, the uni halls are considered sacred. I mean, there's no good reason to cross-subsidize hobbies that way. Yeah. Okay, so I've heard you argue recently for a universal basic income, UBI. Um, that sounds very counterintuitive for a right of center, free market kind of person. Tell me why you think that makes sense. I, I'm, I'm mortified. <laughs> now, that was a, a fun discussion with the, the Brisbane Dialogues. They, they brought on uh, two more free market speakers and two less free market speakers. And they had, uh, of those, one each for and against. So uh, Simon Cohen was also brought on, uh, CIS, uh, from the Centre for Independent Studies, and he was arguing against UBI, I was arguing for, and they had uh, two other speakers, uh, less free market inclined. Um, now, it, it sounds a bit counter... This is great, because I am predisposed to be vehemently opposed, so change my mind. I changed my mind session. All right, so I, I think one thing to, to, to clear up here is there's different conceptions of the, the UBI, the universal basic income. Uh, and a lot of people have in their mind the very generous version talked about by prominent people on the left. Uh, I'm not arguing for a generous UBI. There are different AOC levels. AOC and you are great friends. Yeah, absolutely, yes. Uh, they, they can do the UBI at multiple levels. So I'm arguing for quite a stingy UBI. And I wouldn't support a big UBI. So then the question is, well, why do that? Uh, if we were starting with no government, I probably wouldn't recommend we added it. Uh, but we're not starting from there. We have a welfare system. So what I'm talking about is how do we change this welfare system uh, to make it work better for the people that we're saying we're trying to help? Uh, so a welfare system is supposed to be trying to help the, uh, the, the unemployed and, and low-income people. Uh, and I don't think the current welfare system is achieving that very well for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that one way we try to help people is by introducing uh, a minimum wage. Uh, I don't think that's the best way of helping low-income people. I think it would make more sense to hand them money rather than uh, have a higher minimum wage. And the second issue is that our welfare system creates high effective marginal tax rates. Jargon, I know, I can't help it. I'm an economist, we do jargon. But effective, our welfare, say it again, our welfare system creates... Our tax and transfer system, I'll, I'll explain it uh, as I go. I'm just admitting to the jargon to start with. So sure. effective marginal tax rates, EMTRs, if I say EMTRs, uh, this is what I'm talking about. It, it means for every additional dollar you earn, 
uh, how much do you uh, end up giving to the government and how much do you get to keep. Mm -hmm. So if you earn a dollar and you keep 30 uh, cents, that's you got a 70% effective marginal tax rate. Now you'd understand what the marginal tax rate is, that's the tax rate, but for a low income person, their situation changes for two reasons. One, they might be paying tax. Two, they're losing welfare. So if you earn a dollar and you lose 40 cents of welfare and pay 30 cents in tax, you actually are losing 70 cents from your perspective and only keeping 30 cents. Uh, what that does is it creates quite low incentive for you to earn more money. And exactly. one of the big issues really spiking EMTRs in Australia, effective marginal tax rates, the incentives, the incentive to earn, uh, is that welfare is taken away at about 60% for a lot of people, and sometimes more depending on which welfare they're on. Uh, and that can end up being a large disincentive uh, towards earning. So what I would like to do is instead of having a current welfare system, which is actually fairly generous by world standards, I know Australians complain a lot, but by world and history standards, our welfare is pretty generous. Perspective is a uh, wonderful thing. <laughs> um, so take what is relatively generous, but then taken away relatively quickly. What I would like to do is give uh, an amount of welfare that is less generous for people who have no jobs, but then take it away more slowly. Uh, so a, uh, give that money to, to everyone to start with uh, at a low level, take it away slowly and then because you're taking it away slowly what you're doing is you end up giving more welfare to people with low-income jobs would it and what one last part of this puzzle right so because you're now giving more of the welfare to people on low-income jobs and less welfare to people on no jobs because you're giving more welfare to the people on low-income jobs you kind of take away the rationale for the minimum wage so this shift allows you to justify the reduction of the minimum wage and by doing that, you actually create a hell of a lot more jobs, which the creation of jobs is going to be the best way to actually decrease poverty long term. Right? Not, a, not a handout, but actually getting people into work. Yeah. So if you can have a, a, a low UBI can uh, achieve those benefits, getting people into work and improving the incentives to work, then I think it's an improvement over the status quo. Uh, not that it's the best system ever. Like I mm. said, if we started with no government, I probably wouldn't you, suggest you're it. You're talking about huge shifts and paradigms in, in understanding in the Australian culture, psyche, um, and... Yes, well, uh, the people who want a big UBI don't end up agreeing with me. But, uh, and people who say they disagree with me to start with, when they hear what I'm saying, might still disagree, but they tend to not disagree with me quite as vehemently once they understand no, what I'm getting you, at. No, you, you're taking me with you to a fair extent. Can um, I just add one other thing on this that might no. get a different, a different context for you? If you've heard of a negative, negative income tax yeah. before, UBI is a negative income tax, they're the same thing. So when I argue for this, I tend to frame it in terms of a negative income tax, which I, I wrote a paper a while ago for the Center for Independent Studies on a negative income tax, yeah. Reform 3030, it was called back then. The numbers are out of date now. Uh, but a lot of people on right of centre find themselves sympathetic to a negative income tax and say they hate the UBI. Uh, the difference between them is an accounting trick. It, it's pure showmanship. They, they are the same thing. Um, I, I like to think I am an economic thinker. Um, obviously nowhere as sophisticated or as deep as, as a lecturer in economics at UQ. But... Um, Exp so, well, not but, but therefore, explain to me the difference in, I guess, in my preferred economic policy, taxation reform right now, which would be a high tax-free threshold. Um, so as people are losing, uh, uh, like a flat tax rate, maybe 20%, low flat tax rate, um, no, no marginal rates, um, no tax brackets, so, but... And I don't mind how high a low, how high a, a tax-free threshold we have. In fact, I think the higher the tax-free threshold, the more 
we've halved the problem of people having an effective mm. marginal tax rate. Well, as someone who's predisposed towards abolishing income tax, I'm sympathetic to increasing it all the way up to as high, high a number as you can think of. Well, but I, realistically, if you're going to put this in the... would be $20,000 tax-free uh, for everybody and then 20% on every dollar The old family after. first policy. Yeah. yeah. So we've already got a $20,000 tax-free threshold, roughly. Uh, so you're happy with the tax-free threshold. Um, a couple of things about well, that. If well, that one, needs to increase to 50 yeah, to but, help people get so, off welfare and into work. Yeah. So a couple of things about that. Firstly, if you're going to increase the tax-free threshold, that is uh, some of the most expensive tax reform. So if you were to put the parameter, the sort of real-world parameter that you can't slash tax revenue too much, uh, every time you increase the tax-free threshold, you have to spike the marginal tax rates. So the best way to keep those marginal tax rates low is to not increase that tax-free threshold too much. Now, that's just a, if you're trying to keep a, a fixed amount of revenue. revenue I would right. like to argue to decrease revenue as well, but 2020 would already be a big hit to revenue. So you'd have to, if you went to higher tax-free threshold, you really have to start questioning how much revenue you're willing to sacrifice. Mm. Uh, but that, that's a conversation worth having depending on how idealistic we want to get. But the, the well, going no, I back to... I actually want to be real world. I want to, I so, want to and, and one of the problems I have with your UBI policies, I don't think it's real world implementable. But we can okay. put so, that to a side and come back to it. Come back to a second thing about your suggestion is uh, that that's a good policy for people who are earning $20,000 and more. For people who are earning less than $20,000, they're not really getting the benefit of an increase in the tax-free threshold. So one way to think about what I'm saying But then is, there's no effective marginal tax rate real problem if they're not earning more than twenty thousand dollars then then they're they're not really being well they're still give, they're, st they're still losing their welfare right so they yeah but that's not a double tax they're just that's just oh the, yeah no, not everyone gets it we've already got a twenty thousand yeah. dollar tax-free threshold yeah. so if people when they lose their when they earn their first dollar they're not paying 85 percent marginal tax rates they're, they're paying the 60 percent and losing your welfare so uh, it's not everyone paying those exorbitant amounts it's just yeah. people in certain categories yeah um often second income earners doing a third day on top of their already existing two days uh, yep. of work or something like that. But uh, the, the issue there is how does that help the people under 20,000? And you can reimagine what I've been arguing for is basically saying, let's make sure these people under $20,000 are able to get the benefit of their tax-free threshold. Now, they, they don't get the benefit at the moment. If you're earning zero or a low amount, you're not getting the full benefit of a tax-free threshold. You are, I am. People working get the benefit of that. But people earning below that aren't getting the benefit. And a negative income tax is basically saying, well, let's allow those people to still get the benefit of, a, of their tax-free threshold. One way of thinking about it, and I was uh, thinking about this on the way in here, maybe there's, maybe there's a paper in this, uh, is the argument is similar to saying, allow people with no income to sell their tax-free threshold to someone else who can use it. Now, that is very similar to what we're saying with a negative income tax. Right? It's basically a, a similar sort of concept. Um, it's if you're below the tax-free threshold, the $20,000, what you've got is unused uh, tax-free threshold. And the argument of a negative income tax is that unused tax-free threshold is valuable. Now, the standard idea of that is if it's valuable so that you get the government to, to pay you for that unused amount of tax-free threshold. Um, but another idea, which I only just started playing with on the way in here, is you could make it so that your tax-free threshold is tradable. You sell it to a rich person who's on a 50% marginal tax rate, they would pay you $10,000 for the privilege of taking your $20,000 uh, or additional, well, whatever it is. Or, or, you know, and I wouldn't pay you 19 because they're only getting half the benefit, right? So yeah. if they're on a 50% marginal tax rate, a $20,000 additional Slightly tax rate less threshold. Slightly half and they're in front. Yeah. So that, uh, you know, arbitrage would end up them paying you to whatever it was actually worth for them. Uh, and and why, but anyway, that, that why might wouldn't be, the government just do that? They'd lose revenue. But haven't they lost revenue anyway if, the, if, the, um, if they've lost the 50% tax on the rich guy who bought it? Well, that's how they lose revenue, right? So that's why they wouldn't do it, right? So that's... Uh, I that's mean, well, what I meant, my question then was not why wouldn't government permit that, but why wouldn't government take the, 
the third party out of the equation altogether and just um, allow people to trade their um, cash thresholds. No, no, without the trade, use that that rich person's fifty percent on twenty thousand and um, and give the the poor person nine thousand. Or well, that, that's basically what the negative income tax is. Then the negative income tax is just the government saying, "All right, so you still pay that tax, rich person, and then we will use that to uh, to to give to the the working person." Uh, as they're going into the workforce. This is complicated because, again, I just the, the traditional conservative position would be if we make it too comfortable for people to be very low income, if we make it too survive, if, if, there's, if there's not a certain level of discomfort there, then... I think you forgot the first thing I said in this was I would decrease the dole for people who are not working. Is that going to increase or decrease their discomfort? Well, that is the, the right question then, is what's the right level of discomfort? See, what, I, what I'm doing is the, the we parameters... we don't want people to be suffering, but we don't want people to be comfortable care of other people. You can't go both work. ways. You're saying, you, you thought I was increasing the dollar and you say you can't do that, and now you hear I'm decreasing it, and now you say you can't do that. But uh, here's no, I'm, what I'm, I'm talking more just... Here's what I'm arguing for, is a, a slight decrease in the welfare you receive if you're not working, and a slight increase in the welfare you receive if you are working, but it's a shitty job. Right, so that, that's basically the trade-off I'm suggesting here. Right, so shift the welfare into giving more of the welfare dollars into people who are making an effort to, and successfully making an effort to, to work their way out themselves. And then the flip, the addition to that is you have to make more jobs be available. And that's where you get the fact that if you're giving people... Which happens with a, a lower minimum, minimum wage. wage. But the, the, and that lower minimum wage doesn't lead to any working person, working person being worse off. Because the working person, if their minimum wage was going to go from, say, uh, 10 to 11, instead of doing that, uh, instead they are, are given more uh, welfare to cover the loss of the increase in their minimum wage. This is what I say about the, the system I'm advocating would have more welfare for the working poor, less welfare for the non-working poor. But because you give more work welfare to the working poor, you no longer need to increase the minimum wage, and that creates more jobs, so more of the non-working poor can become working poor. So we've got a double incentive, more jobs and more of an incentive to take those jobs. Interesting. I, I'm quite sure I haven't wrapped my head around the fullness of I probably haven't explained it well. But <laughs> well, no, it could be just that I'm slow. Um, it frequently is. But um, I, I'd like to spend the rest of an hour or so talking about it. But let's move on. What are you... Um, working on at the moment with the Centre for Independent Studies? Yeah, so this uh, came basically directly out of that discussion on UBI. And at the end of it, we were asked, right, so what, what can you think of that would be a, a moderate step forward that might get agreement from the other panellists? Great question. And, and this was uh, my suggestion that I, I hope can get uh, broader political agreement. And I understand that my, my bigger idea of cutting welfare for the non-working poor and increasing welfare for the working poor, the first part of that makes it very unpalatable to a lot of people and, and won't pass Parliament. But I've got a, a smaller suggestion. And that is, uh, you may know, every year the Fair Work Commission uh, looks into the minimum wage and, and each year they bump up the minimum wage by X percent, mm -hmm. for sake of argument, let's say 3%. Uh, and so the modest, modest suggestion I'm making here is instead of looking at the minimum wage increase in terms of uh, the gross change in income, let's look at it in terms of the net change in income. So you give people a 3% uh, pay increase, but they pay tax on some of that. So they may end up only receiving a 2% increase in their net income or something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, so let's focus on that. Let's focus on the net increase, the net minimum wage, I call it. Uh, and by focusing on the net minimum wage, so far all we've done is changed focus, right? But, but by focusing on that, we open up uh, a, a new decision point. So the Fair Work Commission still makes their decision. They're still trying to make the worker better off to the same amount. Nothing's changed there. But now there's two ways of achieving that. Because by focusing on the after-tax minimum wage, 
The two ways to achieving that are just increase the minimum wage as normal, which we already do. It's the same system as we have now, no harm, no foul. Or change the tax transfer system. Introduce something like an earned income tax credit or a refundable tax credit. Uh, and that way you've improved the outcome of that working person, but without increasing the minimum wage. How does that work? The, the actual device? Uh, uh, An earned income tax credit is, mm -hmm. is basically, it's, it's a tax credit, and if you're not paying uh, enough tax to get the benefit of that, it's refundable. So it's, same, it's very similar to the family tax benefit. Okay. Uh, so it's, it's basically, you could think of it as, it's it, adjusting the tax transfer system as a shorthand to admit that for some people it would look like a tax cut, for some people it would look effectively like a handout. It would depend on the individual circumstances of that person. But either way, it would be the government stepping in to improve their after-tax income position. So their after-tax income position would be improved exactly the amount required by Fair Work Australia. So no worker would be worse off. So this is why I think this might get political buy-in. But it could potentially be done in a way that doesn't increase the minimum wage. Now, this sounds... Which like, then is good for productivity, yeah, which I, for I, I employment. Might, might just do a little spiel on that because it, uh, it sounds a bit abstract and mean. I understand it sounds mean. I don't I'm think mean so. But it doesn't sound I'm mean getting, to you. I'm getting this more easily. But uh, <laughs> well, th this is just a watered-down version of my UBI argument. Uh, but it, it's... Just to put some context on it for the people who might not have thought too much about minimum wage laws. Um, you imagine people are only willing to employ people if those people bring in an amount of productivity at least as high as their wage. Mm -hmm. right? So if people are bringing in $10 worth of productivity and you're forced to pay them $15 an hour, you simply won't employ them because you'd be making a loss by employing them. And most businesses aren't charities. Right? Most exactly. of them like to make money. Mm -hmm. uh, so some jobs are lost. Now, uh, not necessarily a huge amount of jobs and there's huge debate in the literature. But the literature is fairly conclusive that some jobs are lost and there's debate about the exact size of the elasticity. The correct term here is the minimum wage elasticity of labor demand, more jargon. Uh, but roughly speaking, it's about 0.1 to 0.3, or negative 0.1 to negative 0.3, um, with the higher number actually coming from a paper written by Andrew Lee, a uh, labor MP, used to be an economist. Um, and when he was a real economist, uh, he, he did some interesting work in, in labor economics and he found uh, a minimum wage labor demand elasticity of negative 0.3. Now, that doesn't mean anything to anyone. I'm just establishing the background in case people want to check this. Here's the takeaway. You the, freeze. The ah, I'm getting to the takeaway, right? And then you can come back. So that's the jargon in case you want to go and check this. If you want to go and idiot check or, or confirm what I'm saying when I can make a conclusion, it basically means every year you freeze the gross minimum wage, you'll get about an extra 100,000 jobs in the country. So that's the takeaway using Andrew Lee's number uh, and just maths. You know, uh, he used to be a centrist back when he was an economist. I think he's, I don't know where he's gone now. Okay, but he was Labor. Uh, he's Labor man. Uh, so just say that again for slow people like me. For every year you freeze the minimum wage, you get 100,000 people. Uh, roughly 100,000 new jobs. So I probably should have led with that instead of led leading with the jargon. But that is yeah, the important yeah, takeaway. Sure. Uh, that roughly speaking, it's slightly different each year and it depends what the increase in the minimum wage would have otherwise been. Uh, but roughly the difference is uh, 100,000. So even if you find that you just disbelieve the elasticity and you think Andrew Lee is an evil right-wing rabbit exaggerator. When was exaggerator, report published? Uh, before he went into Parliament, so quite a while ago now. But uh, the, the nature Decade. of demand... Oh, 15 years ago? Okay. I'm, I'm guessing now. Um, the, the nature of uh, the elasticity doesn't fundamentally change. So it's, it's still the best number we have available in Australia. But yeah. even if you disbelieve it, you think Andrew Lee is exaggerating right-wing extremist, halve his number. If you halve his number, and you've got no reason to do that, I mean, that's the dishonest thing to do, but let's, let's allow people their dishonesty, mm. halve the number, and that's 50,000 people finding a job. 
And that's, uh, that sounds like a statistic. It is a statistic, and statistics can sound boring, but that's 50,000 families that's that real. could be the difference mm. between their, their quality of life, their, you know, what they can do with their life, which health care um, they can get. I explained the disproportionate unemployment of youth by, by the minimum wage. It's, it's just a simple reality that their experience and, and productivity is not worth as much as an adult. And so if you can get an adult for the same minimum wage as an 18-year-old, uh, you know, a real adult, somebody 25, 30 years old, versus some guy who's one year out of school, um, for the same minimum wage, you're not mm -hmm. going to choose the guy with no qualifications, no experience, um, and no training. Yeah, it says, like so many things in life, Milton Friedman already said it more eloquently than either of us, that a minimum wage is more correctly understood as forcing businesses to discriminate against low-skilled workers. Exactly. You're forced to pay whatever it is, let's say, using the American debate now, you're forced to pay $15 an hour. Uh, what that'll do is it means you will only employ people with skills worth $15 an hour or more and you will discriminate against people with lower skills. Which is why youth unemployment. Yeah, and low-skilled unemployment. Mm. Uh, and people who have English as a second language, higher levels of unemployment. So a lot of people who you could understand why their productivity might not be sufficient yet. Mm. Uh, and they're the ones that fall through the cracks. Yeah, yeah. So that's the... Uh, anyway, that, that's the, the end point of this, this pitch for a and, net and minimum wage. And so you're essentially suggesting we can solve that without forcing people to discriminate uh, against less skilled people by incre by introducing a tax credit or a yeah. or a handout like family tax benefit um, a fortnightly payment for people who are in that Lower, lower so income. The, the Fair Work Commission would make a ruling, these people have to be benefited, and then the government would have the choice, how do we benefit them? Uh, do we benefit them by increasing the gross minimum wage, like they always did, right? So that's Which the history. Which will cost at least 50,000 jobs a year. Yes. Um, or do we achieve the same benefit for the worker by changing the tax transfer system? Which would have a cost. There's nothing, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Yeah. Um, it would have a cost to the budget. Um, but the government would have that choice each year, right? So if the budget was too tight that year, they could fall back on the gross minimum wage. But if the budget had the space to be able to do that, that year they could, the government could pick up that cost, uh, free up business to be able to employ an extra 50, 100,000 extra workers, and we would be able to get that benefit mm. uh, in, in, in the workplace. So uh, the fact that, I mean, it's a, it's a third rail of politics, IR reform, right? And IR reform has gotten to the, it seems it's been put in a too hard basket, and that's because no one wants to admit that any worker is going to be worse off. Yeah. But I think this suggestion doesn't leave any worker worse off. We're saying we're factoring in the idea for this to be politically viable. We have to make sure every person who's a beneficiary of a gross minimum wage increase, we make sure they still benefit from this system. Yeah. But uh, they can benefit and take away that political argument against it while we can still achieve the goal of creating more employment. Yeah. So. I hope that's acceptable to a broad swath of the, the political spectrum. I think it should be. And this is, like I was saying before, I can be quite uh, radical sometimes when I've got my philosophical hat on, but occasionally I like to ask the question of what, what ideas could I get past someone who normally disagrees with me? Yeah. And I think this one uh, could work. So I'd be interested to hear the feedback from many of your listeners who uh, might be more of an economic lefty. What is the, uh, the downside? Why not take these extra 100,000 new and, jobs? And this is the... This is the fundamental rub, is, is uh, that it's not that right-of-centre people don't care about the poor, it's that we care about the long-term consequences of helping the poor while we help the poor. 
We really want to be that, you know, provide that safety net for the people that need it, not let anybody fall through the cracks, the cracks. Um, extinguish extreme poverty in our nation and homelessness and, and all of those, you know, terrible social ills while not letting people just be lazy. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's a bit of a, I mean, we've probably said this and heard this ourselves a thousand times to the point it's become a meme, but it, it's, it's a truism worth repeating. And the difference between people isn't that half the population wants the poor to be poor. It's not an attack on poor people. It's an mm. attack on the strategy currently used. Mm. Uh, and most uh, people on the free market side of things aren't hoping poor people stay poor, ha ha ha, we get to make money. Mm. It's uh, we think a, there's a different solution that works better yep. to actually and there's an inherent, people's lives. an inherent envying to the language that people on the left use when they say things like the gap between the rich and poor is getting bigger instead of focusing on the fact that the poor are getting richer. Yeah, you notice the change in topic, though. I mean, this this often happens. They, they, if the topic is poverty, you know, uh, insufficient assets going to people in the bottom of the spectrum, and you want them to have more resources, you want mm. them to have better resources, that's a quite a different topic to inequality. I mean, you can have perfect equality with everyone with a dollar a year. Mm. That's perfect equality. Is that what people want? Or you can have massive inequality, but the poorest person has a million dollars a year. Now, both of those are silly extremes, but they're silly extremes used to point out that if you think about it, search your soul, search your heart. What is it you care about? It's deprivation. Yes. You don't want anyone to have deprivation. Equality, it's got it's, nothing to do with comparison. E equality isn't unimportant, but it's a different topic. And mm. merging these two topics, because to, they do this by showing inequality is high, and then they show a picture of a poor person. Well, wait a second, one topic at a time. We all agree help the poor person. Let's go and find the best way to do that. Now there's a topic of inequality. It mm. could have costs, but it also has benefits, and it's really hard to balance, and it's not clear how we fix that without ruining things that are far more important. Uh, and that's a different topic, but then because you've said that, they point back at the poor person. Yeah. But no, no, I, I agree. Let's find a system to help the poor people. Yeah. And equality is a, a slightly different conversation. So it's, yeah. that's a frustrating. It's maddening also in, in the Australian context because uh, some of the statistics used called poverty measures uh, are measuring inequality. So the standard uh, measure, poverty measures reported in Australia aren't measuring uh, that you, you don't have resources and you haven't been able to get more resources. They measure how far are you behind the average. So if the average is going up, it looks like poverty's gone up, even mm. if poor people have more resources. And it's a frustrating uh, discussion it's because the control of language from the, mm. the, the left has led people to not be able to truly understand what's going on. Language is incredibly important. It is, yes. So given that both people on the left and people on the right both want to help end poverty, especially extreme poverty, uh, and the debate is more about how, and, and strategies, uh, what do you think is a, a really great right of centre, I hate using the word right wing because it's so often used pejoratively, but let's say right of Stalin, um, <laughs> uh, strategy to actually help, what's the real problem with poverty solutions and what's the solution to the problem? By the way, my dodge on that is uh, I self-describe as, as free market or a classical liberal or a libertarian. So I can then avoid saying left or right at all. But that's my dodge for that. My, um, my dodge on that is I describe myself as Christian. That works. I, I don't want to be left or right. I just want to be Christian. What would Jesus do? And I don't mean that tritely. I mean that incredibly profoundly. So 
But to the question. To the, to the question. <laughs> so there's, there's two um, streams of answer there. One is the one that's more often given by people in my position. And I don't think it's untrue, and I will mention it. Uh, but that is the free market is the greatest tool that's ever brought people out of poverty in, in history, if you're I agree. kind. I mean, the, the introduction of market reforms in China starting in the, the late 70s, early 80s, yep. ha, has brought uh, like a, a billion people, a billion people out of dire poverty. Not like I can't afford the next Xbox poverty, but a dollar mm. a day poverty. Uh, most of the country used to be in that, and then over the decades following the market reforms in China, uh, most of the country is, is out of that sort of poverty, which is a remarkable story. And that writ large for the world over the last 200 years has been the story of market reforms, uh, growth, and people coming out of poverty, which is a brilliant story worth repeating again and again. Mm -hmm. So I, when I switch topics, I don't mean to undermine that. Hugely important and still true. So mm. encourage uh, free markets to create uh, inclusive growth, uh, and then that will raise ships. But a, a second part of the answer, perhaps a more short-term part of the answer, is, well, what do you do now for people who, who need help? That you can't wait around for the, the growth to happen over 10 years. There's people who need help day to day. Uh, and I think it's really, it's an interesting, it's interesting to go down, uh, look at the history of this topic because a lot of people think that what happened is people just fell through the cracks and then the government introduced welfare and now some people are caught in that safety net. Uh, the history of welfare isn't that the government created it. The welfare communities evolved uh, in, in, in Europe starting in England where we have the best, uh, best statistics going back uh, some 400 years ago. Now they started pretty small, these are welfare communities, people get together and they agree to pitch in a small amount and then help out whoever falls on hard times. It started quite small, but in the 18th, 19th centuries, these boomed. They became quite big. Some of them called friendly societies, welfare communities, whatever you want to call them. Churches. Uh, ch churches often started friendly societies. Uh, churches often, th this isn't a charity I'm talking about. So charity is helping a stranger, and that's great. That also boomed in the 19th century. Uh, what I'm talking about here is people getting together in community groups. Uh, the community groups specifically designed for everyone pitching in small amounts when they can, and then that money going to people when they fell on hard times. So welfare, mm -hmm. right? Basically, the, the voluntary community-based uh, welfare uh, evolved naturally in, I guess you could say the marketplace, but it wasn't for profit. It was just voluntary in, in the civil society sector. Uh, and these weren't covering a few people. They were covering, by the time they were gotten rid of, effectively by the government, uh, over 50% of the population, about 55% of the population. And the rich people weren't doing this. They didn't need it, right? So rich people didn't bother with friendly societies. They had their trust funds, right? So we're talking about average people being a member of these uh, friendly societies. And they were growing at a couple of percent per year. If you extrapolate for their growth, and there's no reason to think they would magically stop except for the fact that the government stopped them, right? So if they were allowed to grow, uh, there's no reason to think they wouldn't have kept growing. Uh, if you extrapolate it forward, friendly societies would have been almost universal by the 70s. And they would never have got universal. You never get to 100% coverage. There's, unfortunately, people fall through the cracks. I'm not making the, the claim of perfection. Mm. But you would have had a, a largely functioning welfare system done through community welfare without government involvement at all. Uh, we didn't get that. What we had is the government didn't invent welfare. They nationalized it. And after they nationalized it, I would argue they've ended up creating a worse product. Uh, and when I say that the government's welfare is worse as than... As governments inherently do. As they, as they generally do. Uh, and when I say this, a lot of people expect me as a, one of those evil free market economist types to start complaining about the welfare system requires higher tax rates. And yes, it does do that, and that's not a good thing. But I think it's really worth just focusing on the quality of the welfare. Because I think if you do a side-by-side -side comparison in the quality of the welfare done through community groups versus the quality of the welfare done through government, I think put aside the fact that the government system is more expensive, and involuntary, uh, it, it, I don't think it helps the poor as effectively. 
And I think this is an understudied thing, an underappreciated thing. Mm. Uh, it's, it's, so I think it's worthwhile focusing that shift to how you do that welfare better. And you need to think about how that welfare is done. So again, I, I admit community welfare will not be perfect. Nothing is. Right? Some people will fall through the cracks with community welfare. But some people fall through the cracks with government welfare. So let's not let utopia be our, our yardstick here. Yeah. Let's not let the perfect be the enemy of the good. You know what, my understanding is that Japan is very similar to what you're describing. That, um, And I've got a, a friend who's a white Australian like me, married to a Japanese lady and spent a long time living in Japan. And and what he's explained to me, and I haven't verified this with, with sources or, or you know data, but, and I don't know if you know, but uh, essentially there is government welfare in Japan, but... Um, it's the safety net to the safety net. The the culture in Japan is that your family looks after you. Yeah. So and and you're actually questioned, or your family is questioned when you apply for welfare. Why aren't you looking after your family member? Because it's just expected that welfare first solution comes from your immediate and, and then your secondary communities. So th this is one way to, for people to, to get a, a mental hook on the idea is a lot of cultures in the world already have extended family groups that play a role similar to these community groups. Uh, I would say the community group idea is a little bit different in that uh, families you're born into, community groups you choose, uh, community groups can then compete against each other to offer better products and that competition also drives down the costs of coordination sometimes. So you do have a problem if welfare or is, is entirely or mostly provided through the family you do have the issue of uh, some capture. You can't just trade in your family very easily, or at least you shouldn't. Um, yeah, and, and we certainly have generational welfare but, problems. But to give people an intellectual hook on welfare not done through the government, yes, a lot of people, extended family groups do that. I would say community groups are even a step better than that because then you start having the, the benefits of a community group that cares about each other, helping each other without compulsion. Uh, but you also have competition between community groups because uh, if they want the members, they're going to have to offer the best product. And that competition will tend to drive down the waste in the welfare system and make sure that the, the products are being most effective to help the people in need. But going back to... So you're talking about contributors, people who... You know, everyone's pitching in because they join a, a, yeah. a welfare group, sometimes in the, in the 19th century, often called friendly societies. Mm. You join a friendly society and it wouldn't just be a welfare group. You would meet up once a month. You go to like a, a backyard barbecue at someone's place. Uh, one great little story I, I read is a, it's sort of... It's only one story, but it helps to, to put a face on the idea. Right now, if you uh, lose your job, if you're sick, you can get some welfare, you can get some sick leave, uh, and the government stamps a piece of uh, a check and hands you some money. That's nice. Uh, under the friendly society system, if you got uh, sick, had to take some time off work, the friendly society pitched in. Um, maybe not always as much, but they, they pitched in. But then uh, someone from the community comes around every week with some cookies, asks you how you're doing. Right, tells you the latest gossip. So, if you talk, think about the the effects of welfare recipients of welfare on the recipients, it can be quite alienating. People can feel isolated, dehumanizing, isolated mm. from community. Whereas under friendly society, it was the exact reverse. You were being brought in, and why is that? The person helping you isn't a, a random paid employee of Centrelink stamping a check. It's your neighbour. It's your cousin. It's your it's the person that you go to church with, or the person you meet at the backyard barbecue every second month. They're actually a real person that cares about you and you care about them. There's relationship. Uh, and so it actually builds community that way. So instead of the current welfare system through government being corrosive for community, community welfare builds community. And now, you said government killed these community groups and, and friendly societies. Well, they effectively nationalised it. They, they took over. They took over providing uh, for, for free, which means taxpayer-funded, uh, things that uh, were the raison d'etre for the... A lot of the friendly societies. So one of the big reasons the friendly societies existed, one of their main products, was offering healthcare. 
So if, if you were sick, they sent a doctor around. If you were sick, they paid you some money while you were sick and couldn't work. That was one of the main things they did. The government comes along and says, I'll give you a free doctor, then why do you bother joining the Friendly Society? So right. they really, they took away a lot of the reasons for these community groups to exist. Okay, so now what I'm getting from you is that people join friendly societies not out of benevolence, but out of insurance. Yeah, they're not charities. Right? I tried to draw that distinction earlier. The charities existed in the 19th century and they boomed, and that's great. But I'm not talking about charities, right? A lot of people joined charities, gave money to people who needed. Community groups were like your neighborhood group. Everyone from your neighborhood or everyone from your it's workplace. Like a co-op buy-in. Yeah, basically. Uh, so it's, it's a very communitarian idea. Right? People who are, are communitarians without being socialists should be sympathetic to this idea. And the underappreciated part of the discussion is uh, that it really did help build a stronger community, the bonds between people. It's easy for us economists to get caught up in the numbers and get caught up in this improved growth and this improved employment. Now this is very parallel to something that I would have an, an insular exposure to, and, and that is the welfare nature of churches for centuries, looking after certainly their own members before, uh, before government welfare took yep. over, but also their strangers in immediate circles of influence, and, and the town even. Um, to what extent are you researched or knowledgeable on, well, yeah, on churches, that change? Churches dynamic? played a, a big role in this, as did families, right? Families, churches and community groups all played a huge role uh, in uh, helping people in need. And you'll note uh, it's uh, very uncanny, it's not a coincidence, that when people in need were just given a free check by a stranger, suddenly the incentive to hold together families, churches and communities decreased. And then families, churches and communities decreased. And I don't think that's a good thing. And a lot of people say, how can we, how can we get divorce back... divorce rate and single parent rate. Yeah, and people say, how can we get back the families and churches and communities? And of course, as maybe, you'd say, maybe you'd say as an economist or a free market economist, of course I'd say that. But the single best way is to recreate the, the fundamental incentive that drove people there. So I have a bit of Man, a controversial... Uh, I'm singing hallelujah to what you're preaching right now. It's, <laughs> it's... Well, you might not like this one. Here's a controversial opinion. Um, I, I think that churches should be spending more time on improving the welfare of the people in the church. Um, I think uh, that no, firstly... not hating it so far. Well, okay, well, the flip side of that, because that's only saying the upside, you've got limited resources. What I'm saying is spend less time helping strangers. Now, I understand at the moment, no, a lot I'm of the churches... I'm with you still. A lot, okay, maybe it's not you I'm arguing against. There's someone out there that uh, will uh, be I, I shaking their head. I my, my views may be non-orthodox. I find, given the decline in, in uh, Christianity in the West, uh, they, one of the pushbacks by younger people is saying, no, no, uh, our religion's good, look at what we're doing for all these strangers. Let and me, I find let me that, tell you that, why that I, I think that's the you. wrong way to go. I think they should be increasing what they're doing for members. Yep. Uh, and that increases a sense of community around the church. And one of my criticisms of the church here, we can disagree, uh, maybe. <laughs> uh, one of my criticisms of the church uh, is that I think they've been uh, too quick to require people to actually believe what they believe before embracing them into the church community. Fair. Uh, and I think fair, one, of the totally things, one of the things I find disappoint oh, disappointing is the wrong <laughs> word. Sad, sad about the trajectory of the West is I think there is more of a role for non-theist believers in church communities, uh, but both sides seem to have driven them out. Non-theists seem to say, well, I don't belong in church anymore. And a lot of theists seem to point at them and say, yo, they're right, you don't belong in church anymore. You know, where I would draw the line would be if you don't share the fundamental doctrines of the faith community you're being woven into, then you shouldn't be in leadership of that community. But you can okay. participate fully as a member. You just don't get to take a lead. That would certainly be counterproductive. Um, but I agree with you. Um, people who, uh, I mean, ultimately I see church not as a holy club, but as an unholy club. 
This is for a group of people who just are totally comfortable with the fact and accepting of the fact that they haven't arrived, they haven't got it all together, they're full of faults and a long way from perfection, and as an acknowledgement and embracement of that, they're wanting to go on a journey in that direction, which has to acknowledge the fact that they're not. Yeah. Uh, and so it's, it's like a sporting club. Uh, you have senior players and you have junior players, and the senior players help the junior players, but you're not excluded from the club because you're a junior player. You, you, just because you, you can't you know, kick a goal from 100 metres doesn't mean you're out. You, you're actually, well, how do I do it? Well, let's practice together, let's train together, let's live together, let's get better at what we identify unites us all. Um, on this journey towards excellence. So I'm worried about the amount of furious agreement we're having here, but I, I agree with you yet again. I think Christianity at its best is when it, it some people perceive it as Christians saying that they're better than the non-Christians. Just to I finish think, my metaphor, I wouldn't put somebody in the coaching position who didn't believe in the rules of the game. Fair enough, yeah. So the, the, sometimes it's thrown at Christianity, sometimes deservedly that there's an attitude of, of we're better. Uh, but a lot of the time you find, and Christianity at its best, is really people saying, no, no, we are acutely aware of our inadequacies. That's why we're here. That's why um, we need We, we are broken. And we need help. Yes. Uh, yeah. So it's, exactly right. it, it can be quite an unfair... Uh, then let me articulate story. something else that um, I teach, that there's a lot of policy where you can argue biblical wisdom from either side of the, the debate. And one of those is immigration. Um, and, and refugees to your question about looking after strangers uh, as opposed to ourselves. And, and certainly there's many biblical verses saying, look after the stranger amongst you and, and look after the foreigner in your midst. But there's also verses that say, he who doesn't look after his own household is worse than an unbeliever. And see, pick you up on a part of that sentence, amongst you, in your midst. I mm. think it uh, would be a great idea for churches to, to say we're helping people here, mm. but then you don't stop who's here. My point Let is, people walk into the church. My point is the other side of that welfare reality, without contradicting it, is that there are concentric circles of influence and, and relationship. And the closer somebody is to you, for example, members of your own household, they're your highest priority in looking after. And in looking after the people who are furthest away from you, if you betray your duty to the people who are closest to you and fail to look after them adequately, then you've then you've missed the, the degrees of responsibility yeah. that so we a, each have. It's a community-based uh, version of clean your room, basically. Yeah, yeah. very much. So, yeah, I'm, I'm totally loving what you're saying. So and I, I would love to get our churches, my church, your church, back to the level where we actually go above and beyond our obligation to government welfare and start looking after our... I would love for the single mothers, the widows... Um, single parents, uh, not to make it too gendered, uh, you know, but those people, I would love to make sure that they are, I guess, start from yeah. the bottom. Nobody in extreme poverty, then nobody in poverty. I guess the, the pointed part of what I'm saying, which would be controver controversial, disagreeable to some people, is instead of uh, the church going out and finding single parents, I, I think there should be an incentive for those single parents to, to go and walk into the church. And if they walk into the church, help them. Right? You don't have to sign up to the church, but Brilliant. walk in, you come to the church. And what it does yeah. is, I'm not trying to convert them. That's not really my goal. I'm not a theist. Um, but it creates community. It creates yeah. a sense of these are the people I'm in this journey with together in my neighborhood. 100%. Uh, and I think we want to create more incentives for that. Uh, and unfortunately, the big difficulty is the government provides 
uh, at the moment a, a antiseptic but you know, overly generous, I would argue, uh, version of this that takes away the need to be involved in community. Yeah. You can just hide in your basement and never speak to and a person, never have community and still get the check sent to you. And if I can be evangelical at the same time as agreeing with you, I would say that conversion would not be rare while not pursued simply flowing naturally out of relationships. Well, as I told community. you before, I've, I've started to showing up to a church and I'm, I'm not a theist, but um, you know, practicing what I preach now, thinking that they're good for the, it's a good way to engage with your community. Awesome. And as I say to, uh, said to, to my pastor, look, uh, I like the idea of people like me being here. Of course, once I'm here, I expect you to try and upsell me. I mean, that's, that's your job. <laughs> um, but it's, it's, we, can, we can both walk our paths. It's, yeah, that's brilliant. I think that's that's fantastic, and it's uh, what's the opposite of dissonant? Um, it's harmonious with the concept of being culturally Christian, with, yeah. without being what religiously it, Christian. I, I, I say this a lot to, to friends. It's um, it, it's an interesting thing to note, especially about uh, Protestant versions of Christianity uh, in the modern West. People who grew up Buddhist but no longer believe in Buddhism, you ask them what their religion is, they'll say Buddhist. Yeah. People, most people I should say, most people who grow up Muslim, ask them what religion they are, even if they don't believe in Islam anymore, they'll just say Muslim. Mm. Nearly everybody does this. In South America, you ask them their religion, they'll all say Catholic, and then you can ask more questions later and find out if it's actually true. I mean, it's, the answer most people give this question is a cultural answer. Yep. They're telling you my cultural is Buddhist, my parents were Buddhist, you know, I go to temple occasionally. They're not telling you their literal belief in, in the doctrine. And the only people who really run away screaming from doing that are Protestant Christians, who as soon as they stop believing the doctrine, they say, I am not a Christian. Mm. I am certainly not a Christian. I'm nowhere mm. near it. And then they often become quite angry the other direction. Uh, but it, I like that idea of, of like, the, like the Buddhists and the Muslims and the Hindus, uh, when they stop believing, it's still a generally accurate to say that you are broadly in the, in the Christian culture. Uh, and then you can start arguing the, the details if you want. So then I don't sign up to the theism and then we can argue about that if you'd like. But uh, I, uh, it's been an interesting journey for me, but I, I, I don't know whether it makes sense here. I would like to live in a world where it made sense for me to call myself Christian again, despite not being a theist. I still think that might be false advertising because people would misunderstand what I'm saying. They would assume I'm a theist by saying that answer. Uh, but I'd like to live in a world where people like me could re-associate uh, with the word Christian without being misunderstood. Yeah, I, I think there's, there's a commonality of people who call themselves Christians um, and, and have, I, I guess, a deficit of the real relationship with Christ that I would say defines Christianity. Um, but I, I think a, the helpful distinction is culturally Christian. Um, and I'm, I think there'd be a few thinkers who appreciate the distinction, but you might have to ex still explain that to a lot well, the, of people. The way that Catholics, I think, use it is add the word lapsed. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's true. I'm a lapsed Protestant. So yeah, could, but yeah. it, it infers in, 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 in a regression, um, whereas I think what you're on is a progression. That you, well, I was brought up Christian. I, I started Christian okay, and, then went so through my, Christian. and then I went through my radically anti-Christian phase and then I went through my neutral phase and now I've gone back to my appreciation of the culture of Christianity and the value of being involved in those community groups. Okay, brilliant. You are actually quite a rarity in this generation. Somebody who's started a political party which has actually got people elected into various parliaments around Australia. So uh, you, uh, would, would it be fair to say you're one of or the founder of the Liberal Democrats? 
depends how you want to define how it started. But anyway, yeah, I, I was the, the, the first uh, crazy person to sit down one late night and, and scribble it all out and start gathering members. But it didn't go anywhere without their first people that showed up, of course. So, and of course. it wasn't registered until we had that whole first group of people who showed up. Yeah. So it was a. And so for people who aren't familiar with the Liberal Democrats, who are the people that have been the Liberal Democrat members who've been elected to various parliaments around Australia? Yeah, so the Liberal Democrats have been around since 2001, so started back when I was a, a 22-year-old. Um, Itself an incredible achievement. Uh, well, I used, I used to have so much... There's so many 22-year-olds trying to start political parties right now. I used to have so much more time back then. I don't understand it now. I look at my, uh, my itinerary and I don't see how I used to have that much spare time, but I guess that's the difference of having kids, maybe. So federally, uh, Senator so David Lionhelm may be the highest profile. Yeah, so most people wouldn't have heard of it until 2013. So we did exist before that. I was just pointing out we did have a, a bit of a back history and, and some interesting stories along the way, but the moment we got onto most people's radar was the federal election 2013 when David Lionhelm was elected to the Senate from New South Wales. Mm -hmm. uh, now we got a bit lucky there. This is the nature of small parties though. It requires um, a lot of hard work and a lot of luck. Mm. So a lot of people put in a lot of hard work and never get anywhere and you know, life isn't fair sometimes. Um, you need both and we got luck that year because that was the biggest ever Senate ballot paper in New South Wales uh, in the history of the, of the country. Uh, and the bigger the ballot paper, the less people read and we got the first spot. Wow. So that's very lucky. It was the biggest ever donkey vote uh, for, for, a, for a Senate election because it was the biggest ever ballot and we were lucky enough to, to get that. Um, but you, know, you, you need luck and you need to then ride your luck. Mm. Uh, so a lot of people would have heard of us then. David, David Lionhelm was re-elected in 2016 uh, without the donkey vote, so that was nice. Uh, and then uh, we fell short in, was it uh, the last election, 2019, so we yep. no longer have a senator. But in the meantime, we did elect a, a few extra people to state parliaments. I guess the highest profile at the moment would be uh, David Limbrick and Tim Quilty in the Victorian Upper House. Mm -hmm. And they've done some uh, great work down there, pushing back against the uh, sort of lockdown madness. Um, well said. For, for Victoria. So that, that's... If not understated. <laughs> um, well, I'm not on the ground in Victoria, so I don't know it as well as them, but uh, it's, it's, we also had to complete the story, uh, Aaron Stonehouse uh, elected to the upper house in, in WA yep. and some other close shaves in, in various other states. So, so that's four. Four have been elected. Uh, David's out. So David was also briefly replaced by Duncan Spender. So that was another, uh, our senator for a few months. Yeah. Um, so we've had five people elected okay. at state and federal level. So the other person that I'm aware of who started a significant party in Australia and is still alive is Andrew Evans, who started the Family First Party in South Australia many years ago, uh, which did very well and got quite a few people elected both federally and, and at least to the South Australian Parliament, um, and uh, obviously got con consumed by um, Corey Bernardi's. Yes, well, um, Bob Day and David Lionhelm used to work together quite regularly, on, at yeah. least on fiscal issues, on economic issues. Yeah. Uh, when Bob Day first left the Liberal Party, I, I gave him a call and and uh, tried to nudge him towards the Liberal Democrats. He, it would have been a good recruit way. for you. Um, we, we probably had a, a, a bit of a difference on some social issues. So they, I mean, the, the obvious difference between Family First under Bob Day and ourselves are the, the social issues. As a libertarian party, as a bunch of social liberal policies that might not fit as easily in a sort of conservative Family first, yep. but Bob Day and David Lionhelm uh, got along quite well, yeah, philosophically on a lot of economic issues. And I like Bob; I thought he was uh, mm. a reasonable person, open to ideas, and right more than wrong, even if not always right. But who yeah, is? Yeah. Who is? Well, um, exactly, and, and I think that's the way. I'm happy to say, idealistically, I think parliaments should work as a whole bunch of individuals who are genuinely reaching a consensus without without these party 
you know, closed ranks um, positions, and uh, that's a different discussion. But I, Kumbaya, I think, Dave, Kumbaya. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think that's that genuine contest of ideas where you have a lot in common and you, and you just hash well, out the difference. I don't know if it's worth jumping down that rabbit hole, but uh, the, the pushback I would... Perhaps not <laughs> Running out of time. The, the pushback I'd give there is I think a lot of people keep trying to think how they're going to fix democracy. Um, I'd put to you that a lot of the negative outcomes we get from democracy are because of the nature of it. Uh, to some degree, it's unfixable. Oh, I uh, think it, some of the negative outcomes are because of people trying to fix it. Uh, well, it's such people, as the Senate reform. I think that was atrocious. No, that was a ridiculous idea. I yeah. agree. it was. Uh, but it, it, the idea—I think a lot of people see a bad outcome and they think democracy isn't working correctly. Democracy yeah. doesn't tell you you're going to get a good outcome, and indeed, the nature of democracy creates pretty poor incentives. Right? The, the best way to get elected is to trigger people's uh, fear or unrealistic hope. And if you can Agreed. trigger that, if you can offer stuff, well. It, a lot of Pork people... barreling is very effective. Yeah, it, you'd be surprised actually that uh, there, there's been research into this. More people vote for what they think is the good rather than vote for their own good. They often end up correlating the two because what you see a lot, what you're involved in, you see a lot of. Uh, but if you ask nurses uh, why they support policies that directly lead to them getting higher income, very few of them actually believe it's for selfish reasons. And it probably isn't. Like if you search their heart, they're not saying, I'm greedy, I want to raise, I'll vote for more health funding. They're saying every day I go into the hospital and I see the shortfalls, mm. uh, I, I want those fixed. But it's, it's, it's accidental greed in that they've got a myopic view of, uh, of where resources are being allocated. They see yep. one shortfall, they don't see the other nine, 99 shortfalls, and they get biased that way. Yep. But I think uh, accusing the voters of just being too greedy, uh, it can be true, but I don't think it's the fundamental issue. The fundamental issue is the, the incentive structure uh, that for how you get people to vote for you. Uh, and that I is by triggering fear. I think the your position is that politicians don't seem to understand it. They seem very invested in the things you did say as well, manipulating fears and emotions. But certainly, they they seem manipu- They seem motivated to appeal to people's. Uh, yeah, the, the, the pitch to increase welfare is the pitch to get rich people to vote for them. I mean, by and large, that's the, the they're pitching to people who aren't needing the welfare, saying that we can be generous, I can do the generous generosity for you. I don't now, know that that's true. Yeah, I, I agree that uh, some people, true, some people on the welfare might also appreciate it, but they're not that many people. You don't think so? I mean, com- com- compared to the total voting public. And we're probably getting caught in the weeds. Let's say, let's, let me yeah. agree with you part yeah. way and say some people vote their pocketbook. I'm not denying that anyone does it. Yeah, I'm, but just, I'm add, just adding it to the list. That, you, uh, the, your list was fine. Historically, uh, selling unrealistic hope, promises that you can never fulfill, uh, and fear, uh, are two great ways to get elected. Not right. uh, and if that's the inherent incentives of democracy, not an accident, the inherent incentives, then that's what you expect to get and that's what you get. And that's why you have these fear campaigns. And, and half of these people will disagree with, but I think a ridiculous and hyped uh, fear campaign on, how, uh, on, on climate change, and I think it was a ridiculous and hyped fear campaign on uh, terrorism. And you might disagree with me on that one. Mm-hmm. I think it was a, it's a ridiculously hyped and exaggerated fear of guns and a ridiculously hyped and exaggerated fear of drugs. And when you find these things and you can get people's fear zones running, mm. then you can, and then we can protect you from the fear, it's a great way to get elected, but it leads to a lot of selling well, of fear that I think, I think the exaggerates most, the fear. The most salient uh, example of that of the last year was coronavirus. The exaggerated, manipulated fear of that. And whoever exaggerated the most got re-elected the easiest. It's, uh, exactly right. Yeah, so. uh, what a perverse incentive. But my point there is that there's no fixing that. So what we need to do is have, uh, I'm not saying let's not be democratic, but if democracy is the best form of government and democracy has this many flaws, let's increase our skepticism of government writ large. That's, yeah. that's the argument here. So let's talk about the future you see for liberty and 
advocates of liberty in, in Australia and the Australian discourse. All right, this is a bit of a trigger issue for me. As, um, this is a difficult time, I think, for libertarians, uh, this, this time in, the political, in this political age. Um, we were 10 years ago, uh, maybe when Ron Paul was running around, in what some people were calling a libertarian moment. Uh, in my opinion, that's well and truly passed. We are in the middle of a, a, a culture war for which libertarians, as libertarians, have very little to say. Because libertarians can be other things too, right? You could be a libertarian and a culture warrior and a, and a religious person and anything else. But libertarians, as libertarians, uh, have very little to contribute to that. And I think that culture war is really what's uh, focusing people's attentions. Understandably, I and mean, we can talk about the culture war later, but um, if the culture war is what's capturing people's attentions, it's hard to convince them that uh, the increase in size of government is the existential threat. Uh, so I think we're having difficulty in the liberty movement now. In oh, that, see, I see them as inseparable. Explain. Well, the the culture war is all about authoritarianism. It's all about totalitarianism. Yeah, I, I imposition of of alternate belief systems. Now, it's, a, it's a battle between worldviews and belief systems, but it's the imposition of one and the criminalization of the other. I, I don't think that that's the, the underlying fault lines. I asked this recently. Let me, um, let me give you my example. The, the recent legislation in Victoria, Queensland and ACT, but worst of all in, in Victoria, banning so-called conversion therapy, that is the worst of authoritarianism and the worst of the culture war in one bill. There, there can be crossover. I mean, I, 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 there's flaws in the bill, I agree, but I, I, there's a lot going on in the culture war that isn't legislative. So for instance, the, the massive shutting down of various voices through social media, uh, I worry about this, other people worry about it, but it's not, there's no libertarian uh, commentary on this. Um, the the nature Because the commentary I hear on this is, and the antitrust debate. Is this an antitrust issue or is this a free market issue? Well, antitrust is not a free market approach to this. I mean, antitrust is the code word used by people trying to get the government to intervene whenever it's convenient for them. Well, well sure. And so they're the two sides of that liberty debate. But then that, that puts the wokenistas on the libertarian side of that argument. So it's, it, look, I, I think there is an underlying fault line going on. Look, it manifests sometimes in terms of government policy, but I think there's an underlying fault line going through this, this culture war that it's not, it's not driven by originally a, an opinion on size of government. I don't think that's what motivating two people standing on opposite sides of the culture war to throw mud at each other. I don't think it's a, a strong belief in skepticism of the efficiency of government. I think there's something else going on. And I asked this recently on, on my Facebook page, um, or my serious Facebook page, not my personal one, uh, trying to get to the bottom of this, because I've been thinking about it a lot. This is, I, I, I feel, as I think you feel, there's a problem uh, in this culture war, but I've, it's often misdiagnosed, I think, and that's not to say that I have the diagnosis, uh, but I see a lot of uh, explanations of what's going on that I don't think capture the underlying uh, fault line, and I don't think it's individual versus collective, because if you have to think uh, two representations of the culture war, uh, Trump versus Trudeau, I don't think either of them really at the core, the argument between the two isn't debating the nuances of, of, of size of government, I think. There, there is a, a view of the world. And I'm trying to whittle that down. I, I don't think I've got there yet. But the closest I'm getting to, I think, is this is an attitude to the benevolence or horrors of Western civilization, modern Western liberal civilization. Uh, and uh, I think that might be the fault lines, whether you think that it's imperfect but uh, generally a good thing, or whether you think it's evil and irredeemable. 
And I think that might be the, the trigger of the culture war fault lines. And you can have either of those opinions and still believe in a big or a small government. So this is why I say libertarians as libertarians can't contribute much to a discussion about defending Western civilization. Uh, See, I, I, I think uh, I had one federal senator, liberal senator, tell me recently over coffee that uh, he got into the Liberal Party because he was an economic conservative. And although he was sympathetic to and maybe even held uh, social conservative views, um, he wasn't interested, interested in prosecuting those arguments. Uh, and my paradigm is that they are opposite sides of the same coin uh, and that you can't have an effective economic debate without understanding that if you concede ground on the social issues which are being waged in the culture war, um, that you then give important ground to your economic opposites. Uh, and the yeah, but I, it, it doesn't need to be economic opposites. Going back before this, if they're before, the battles he's trying to fight, and he's ignoring the cultural ones. He's strengthening. But I'm pushing his back because I'm saying in that economic argument. No, I don't think that's true at all. So you go back before the current culture wars because I do think what we're going through over the last five years is qualitatively different to what came before it. So you go back to, to before that, and it was quite easy to just say I'm a standard, I'm a libertarian, I'm uh, economically right wing and socially left wing. Uh, and I wasn't insane for saying that. And we could sit down here and we could debate all these social issues. Uh, and the, something happened in the last five years to fundamentally change the nature of the discussion. So that saying that now would give quite of a, a warped understanding of what I mean. I but would, I don't think it's inherently true I that if I have socially that the liberal last views. Five years have just proved you were wrong. Uh, something different is going on now. This is no longer a discussion about size of government. This is not what motivates people who are shouting but each other at pubs. It isn't. Though. That's not what's motivating them. Occasionally they will say things about the size of government. But this is not what they, when they look at the other person and say you're wrong, someone on the Wokenista side is See, looking at I, them and saying, I, you don't understand the sin of your civilization. I think you're missing the forest for the trees. And I'm glad we're disagreeing finally. Um, I, I think that if we were committed to liberty, then these arguments about social side would reduce to live and let live. If you can persuade me that you're right, that's fantastic. But at no point will it be, you know, entering into either of our pro-liberty minds that regulating one of these views and, and, and enshrining not, them in legislation would be appropriate. I'm not saying they're not doing it. I'm saying they're not being motivated by that. Now, here's, this is a really helpful distinction. I can't remember who said it, maybe Jonathan Haidt, but anyway, I'm probably misattributing it to it. People approach politics in one of three different ways fundamentally. Liberty versus uh, coercion, which is the way I often see things. I've historically seen things. Maybe you do too, and that's the way people who see things most starkly as big versus small government very easily see things this way. Uh, I like that approach. But some people see it as uh, civilization versus uh, barbarism. It's typically known as the conservative viewpoint. And then if you're supporting the barbarism, you're the baddie. I would say if you support coercion, you're the baddie. And then other people see it as oppressed versus oppressor. Now, I think the, the culture war has a, a high degree, the people pushing the, the workinista side of the culture war are very much on the splitting up the world into oppressed versus oppressor narrative. And if that's their narrative, they're not being motivated by a position on the liberty coercion stream. Now, I know they, they end up, by nature of their behavior, falling on the coercion side. But if I'm arguing back saying, no, liberty instead of coercion, they're not hearing me because they're not understanding that we're having a different conversation. And to go back to the original thing, I think 10 years ago, there was more of a liberty coercion discussion going on in the public sphere. And in that discussion, it's, that's the time for libertarians to shine, right? I mean, that's the time we have something important to say that people might not have heard before, and some people are going to agree with but don't know they do yet, and so we need to be out there.
Mm. Uh, and that's the moment that works well for the Liberal Democrats or, or, so or people like me. But just going to say, that the, so what I think's happened is that liberty moment's passed. And that makes a really difficult time for libertarians because if everyone's speaking about civilization versus barbarism, oppressed versus oppressor, and we're sitting at the side saying liberty coercion, people say, I don't care about the discussion now. It's really hard for us to sell. The second reason this is difficult, I'm sorry, I talk a lot, but the second reason this is a difficult time for, for libertarians is not only is our discussion not the motivating discussion of our political time, in my opinion, but also a lot of libertarians personally. So as libertarians, they might not have anything to say. But libertarians aren't just libertarians, they're also people. So a lot of libertarians are taking very strong sides on the culture war issues. And you are finding a bunch of wokeness to libertarians and you are finding a bunch of anti-woke libertarians. And they're finding over time, I think some of them, are that the culture war debate is more important to them than the liberty debate. And so they're saying, instead of, we, we used to see right libertarians, left libertarians, we could shout at each other in the pub, but at the end of the day we realize, well, it's still us versus those coercion people. At this point, I see more and more woke versus anti-woke libertarians deciding that the other side of the woke anti-woke discussion is more important than being a libertarian. And I'm seeing people leave the liberty movement saying if they're on the woke side, they point to some anti-woke libertarians and saying, well, if those people are libertarians, I'm not. And vice versa, you find some woke libertarians and the anti-woke libertarians are saying, well, if that's a libertarian, I'm not. Because what's driving them now is this, some of these people, is this culture war issue and I worry that that is to some degree hollowing out the liberty movement. Now this worries me because I still very much believe in the liberty moment, movement and I think the culture wars will pass. And so the difficulty for me, my, my task, my goal, however I'm going to do it, is to try and hold the liberty movement together while it wants to separate, or not just me, this is what we all have to try and do, mm. um, and wait for the culture wars to pass and hope that we can get back into a discussion of liberty versus coercion. But in the meantime, I think it's a really difficult time for people like me in the political front. I, it's going to be difficult for me to convince many people while the argument of the day is transgender bathrooms. To, to clarify your use of the words oppressor versus oppressed, are you talking in the Marxist sense, the class struggle, or are you talking in the objective sense, like uh, Jesus came to it, rebuke the oppressor? Uh, the, the original Marxist one was a class-based version of that. The, the modern version of that seems to be um, pox versus white, women versus men, gay versus straight, trans versus cis. So you're talking um, in the woke sense of the... the yeah, and the, and the woke seems like a, a, a somewhat of a bastardization of the old uh, proletariat versus the, the bourgeois. Because I would certainly describe myself as anti-oppression, uh, but yeah. I, I would also consider gender theory oppressive. Yeah, it's a little bit semantics here, but I think the 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 well, the, the, oppressed the the woke people have controlled those words now. So to be able to be understood by people who hear these words, we have to accept that they're going to hear them this so way. So you're talking in the in the in the woke definition of the sense, because what I'm asking for is is I guess in each of those three approaches to politics, we need to find out where we sit on that. Uh, and the third side that you mentioned, oppressed versus oppressor, I just reject the whole paradigm because I think it's... But that's, maybe I didn't explain this properly. The, the point about this isn't that there's three axes and you pick your position. Everyone's going to pick civilization over barbarism. It's how I worded it. The, the issue is that of those three things, one of them uh, best describes the prism through which you mostly see political Fair discussion. Point. So do you see most political discussion as civilization versus barbarism? Uh, if you do, people who do tend to have a predilection towards see, conservative parties. If I'm doing the, uh, the personality test right now with you, I'm probably seeing almost an equal balance of the first two, liberty versus coercion, uh, civilization versus barbarism. I'd probably say those are both 
realistic paradigms that I'm concerned about and the third one I dismiss. Well, this is why I think you, you said before, I don't know if I can throw you in the deep end here, but your politics is roughly conservative libertarian or, or some sort of fusionism of the two. And that fusionism is, ex is, is the exact uh, fusionism of those two first two approaches. So I would see the world uh, historically anyway, mostly as the liberty versus coercion uh, paradigm. Uh, and it's unsurprising that I ended up coming to a, a libertarian conclusion. Uh, and people who see the world through the oppressors versus oppressors. And you know what? I don't... I, I said right at the beginning where I actually want to call myself as neither left nor right or, or any other label but Christian, and you, in response to your free market self-labeling, um, in my pursuit to, I guess, imitate what I understand to be Jesus's position, I would say he also was interested in, in ending barbarism and coercion. You, I think everyone has a, a sense for wanting to fix injustice, and I think sometimes oppression versus oppress, uh, oppressor versus oppressed is seen uh, through the prism of, of normal justice. Everyone, all, all of those three approaches mm. have a belief in justice. I just think justice is liberty over coercion. You think justice is civilization over barbarism. Other people think justice is... So I think the Christian version, you might just, to avoid the semantic confusion, let's call that a, a sense of justice. Mm. Uh, but... I think we're getting caught in the, the semantics part of the discussion now, but no, I think it's interesting. It's, I don't think it's distracting, um, and and because the left has captured language, um, I think clarifying our definitions is just about essential in every conversation. Um, so we're we're not misinterpreted, misunderstood as using a, a leftist definition, or when we intend to. Tying back into the, the, the culture war discussion, I've been trying lately to uh, get a better sense for it, as I was saying before, uh, and really get a better sense for the motivations behind things that at, at first glance my ears find insane. Um, uh, because it's going to be difficult to work out a way to get through this moment without properly understanding it, which I think requires, it, it's so easy to point at the people on the other side, and it's always possible to find idiots on the other side saying absurd things, uh, point and laugh and write them off, and, and this is a, a must defeat the enemy scenario. Uh, and, and maybe it's almost it, a straw man approach uh, uh, to engaging the other side. Yeah, and it's also easy to do that. It's, it's comfortable to be able to do that approach. And you can always find idiots that probably are, are the version of the straw man if you yeah. wanted to take that. But it's uh, the harder approach is try to, uh, to, to understand it in ways where you can give genuine sympathy to the approach being taken. And I think it's, it's really hard to unpack. I don't think I've properly unpacked it yet. I'm still working on this. Maybe we can work it out together. Um, but it, it seems to me that there are a lot of people wrapped into what we've been, I've been shorthanding as the wokenistas here, but I think you understand what I mean by, by that side of the, the culture wars. Um, there's a lot of people packed into that. And I think it's, uh, it's, it's in, important to understand that different people have very different motivations for being uh, in that group. And I think there is a, a group of people, and if we focused on them, it's very easy to call that side the baddies, uh, that, that basically just want to see the civilization burn, right? who are basically anti-modern Western liberal civilization. Critical theorists. Um, critical theorists, yeah. And, and there is a core of that, and you can point to them, and, and, and that is a danger, and it deserves to be taken on. Um, by the way, the caveat, I keep saying uh, modern Western liberal civilization, because Western civilization, which I'd like to say, which is shorter, but that involves a lot of different things. So feudalism mm -hmm. was Western, Nazis were Western, communists were Western. So I, I mean specifically like the liberal Western order um, that describes like Australia and uh, America, sure. most of Europe. Um, so some of them I think uh, just find that repulsive. They think that's bad and they want to tear it down. And I think uh, when we see that, then we see anyone, some, when I say we, some people then uh, perceive criticism of the current order as coming from that starting point. But there are a lot of people who criticize things to improve them. 
Right? So the, the, the liberal or the Fabian approach, uh, a lot of, and I'm not saying I'm Fabian, I'm, I'm not a Fabian socialist, but I, I think I can give them this credit. Uh, I think the, the classical liberals and the Fabian socialists saw the civilization they were in and said, this is, you know, this is okay, I like my civilization, I think I can improve it. I'm criticizing that, and the, the purpose of my criticism is to improve it. Now, I think the critical theorists, the purpose of their criticism isn't to improve, but to destroy. Uh, and so there's, if, if I'm right, there's a couple of things that need to be highlighted. Uh, one, for people who are worried about the Wokenistas, it's important to draw a distinction when you hear something. Is that coming from a position of criticize to improve or criticize to destroy? And especially the, the, the conservative mindset, I'm, I'm projecting here, uh, I think doesn't appreciate the criticism of, of the civilization they're in. Libertarians spend half our time criticizing the conservatives, so, so we're a bit more used to it. Um, uh, but I think it's really, you might not like the criticism, but I think we could draw a sharp distinction between is that criticism uh, coming from a place of, a good place, mm. uh, or coming from wanting to undermine the whole system. So even the Fabian socialists, you might not agree with how they want to improve things, but I'm going to a fundamental motivation. They might want to introduce bad policy just because they don't understand economics, but they still want to improve the situation. Mm. Uh, and so I think we need to do ourselves the service and do other people the service of differentiating, because if you argue against the critical theorists as if they're being genuine, you're wasting your time. But if you also don't take seriously the Fabian socialists because you think they're all critical theorists, then you're doing them a real disservice because they are genuine people trying to improve the system. Define a Fabian socialist for me because the oh, Fabian yeah. society, as far as I know, is essentially a critical yeah, I'm, theorist. I'm just using it as a shorthand for uh, people who are, uh, want the government to control the economy, uh, but they don't want it through revolution. So they don't want to destroy the system and, and rebuild something. It's, it's what I think the Russian Marxists used to call the economists or the mere trade unionists, the people who are merely trying to help the proletariat as opposed to understanding you need to have a revolution and burn the whole system down. Right. So uh, the, I, the people who want a big government but want to do it bit by bit by increasing tax and another handout, I think are wrong, but I think are motivated by improving the system. Yeah. The people who want to burn the system down, I think it's, it's hard to have a genuine discussion with them about politics because they're only having the discussion to try and undermine the discussion to try and ruin the politics. The two words I use all the time to uh, advocate effective debate is civil and sincere. Uh, so what I'm looking for in anybody I'm talking to, whether we agree furiously or disagree furiously, is somebody who will articulate that engagement with sincerity uh, and civility. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I totally get it. We need to hear what the person is saying um, without putting them in a, in a pigeonhole necessarily. But then, uh, as you say, there are some people who are just not sincere, uh, such as the critical theorists. They, they just burn the place down. Um, cultural revolution, and if it takes uh, you know, eight months of burning, looting and rioting a la Black Lives Matter Incorporated, then so be it. That kind of uh, counterpart in a conversation is not sincere and, and not worth two cents of your time. So I, I don't know how to, how to do this, and your audience probably isn't the one that needs to hear it, but uh, what, what I would love to do is be able to convince a lot of the people on the, what I'm calling Fabian as a shorthand, or, or classical liberals, or, or people who see... Let's go with classical liberals. But, but classical liberals are criticizing the status quo for a very different reason to Fabians. That's why I've included them both. They're criticizing okay. it for different reasons and want to take it in different directions. But they're both criticizing the status quo, which in, a normal, in normal settings would still annoy a, a conservative. Um, so the, I would like to get more of the people who are criticizing to improve to be aware that sometimes they are fellow travelers with people who aren't criticizing to improve. Because I, I see a lot of this pushback from my left libertarianish friends. Uh, and 
they, they come back to that, uh, but we could always improve. And I said, well, yes, we can, but are you sure that that's what the people you are holding hands with and marching down the street with, are you sure well, that's what they want? And if we can somehow have a clearer understanding, not just from us so that we can uh, act more appropriately, but also from the, the, the Fabian classical liberal criticized to improve people, if we can get them to appreciate that some of their fellow travelers now are no longer criticizing to improve, some of them are criticizing to burn the system down. Mm. Uh, and I think at the moment, uh, some of my left libertarians, the response to me would be, no, they're not. Right? John, you're exaggerating the, a threat of a boogeyman out there. And I think if we were talking 10 years ago, they'd have had a, a better argument. Uh, and so I think it's the, the emergence of the strength of the critical theorists is something that's sort of come along. A perfect example of that would be the Women's March in America. Uh, and, you know, there would be lots of sincere people in that march. There would be lots of them. You know, how can we genuinely improve the lot for women in Western civilized society? But then you have people who take the stage like Madonna who says, let's put a bomb in the White House. And there's nothing either civil or sincere about that. And she actually means, let's burn the whole institution down because Donald Trump got elected. Yeah, I don't really care too much about what Madonna says. I'm not going to cry She's a placeholder for that No, I, I understand, but I, I, um, it, it's easy to point to stupid things that, uh, that, that figureheads are saying and, and say that's an outrageous thing to say, but they're, they're tones of phrases and... I'm not going to, I don't want to uh, play the same game of people pointing to a colourful turn of phrase that the left does sometimes to people on the right and what say, you genuinely meant that. What they, I'm illustrating is how representative would that have been everybody in no, the no, women's march? I agree with your underlying point that there's a lot, and this can be something that uh, the, the anti-wokers sometimes get wrong. Because you engage a lot with the, the critical theorists, it can be easy to just think that's the only argument happening. But the more important argument is with the people who want to criticise to improve, but no, aren't I, critical I theorists. I agreeing with you. Yeah. No, but I know you are. There's, there's all those people in the Women's March to whom Madonna is a crackpot tinfoil-wearing lunatic. Um, and those are the people that we need to be agreeing with and hearing. Why are you, what are you criticising? What's to improve? Let's listen to you. Let's hear you and see where there's, you know, improvements to be made. Yeah. Which so is what you're saying. And then what you also said was... There's those people in that march who are going. There's nobody crazy amongst us. Well, like, well, if you think that, you're probably really? the one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's um, it, it's a difficult thing to unpack, and I don't pretend that I'm properly understanding this. But I'm. This is. So where do you think? Uh, I, I guess it, what, what are your suspicions, your hints, your feelings, your intuition on where to for libertarians from here? I think while we're in this cultural moment during the culture war, the, uh, it's about saving the furniture. It's about trying to encourage people, uh, don't, don't give up on the liberty arguments yet. Um, the distrust of government centralized power is still a hugely important motivating factor for the future health of our civilization, which I, I do believe. Mm. Got to remind people of that and say, look, you, you can at the moment have a strong disagreement about, with people on this culture war thing and, and remember that on that other issue, uh, we're still aligned. And I think then, for libertarians, we've got to wait for the culture war to burn out. I, I think the wokenistas will end up eating themselves. Uh, I don't think it can be sustained long term. I don't know how much damage will be done in it's the about meantime. As sustainable as the Roman Empire. Uh, well, that lasted a while. But, uh, uh, not once they em embraced the wokenistas. Yeah. Well, anyway, I don't know how much or was damage. That the barbarians. I don't know how much damage could be done uh, on the way out, but I, I don't think it's a sustainable. Um, so let me ask movement. you this question. And so we, I just, from a libertarian perspective, we've got to wait that out. And when we wait that out, by the end of that, there's going to be so much debt and deficit 
that I think the world's going to suddenly going to wake up and turn around and go, wait, how did we get here? What the hell are we going to do? And then we're just going to have to embrace a future of much bigger government debt and deficit, or someone's going to have to push back against that. And that's when we're going to have something really useful to add to the narrative and, and hopefully convince people of. 2020, the year of the global pandemic, uh, big government was rewarded more than ever before for being bigger than ever before. How much of that was a liberty versus coercion debate? And how much of that was the culture war? Oh, that's safetyism, I think. I, I think that probably falls under... The argument is a liberty coercion argument, but it's so thoroughly lost at the moment in Australian politics that it's not really happening along that axis. It's just uh, you agree with safetyism or you're a bad person for a lot of people. Um, and, uh, is safe- that a culture war thing or a coercion thing? No, I think it's a liberty coercion thing, but I think it's, it's not really having much of cut through for most people because as most people think the answer is so obvious. Uh, of course you have safety. So the, people who support coercion don't word it as I support coercion, of course, right? They, they have a, a rationale that makes sense in their mind. Trust the experts. Um, Believe uh, the science. Safetyism, healthism. Right? You need to be safe at any cost, right? You, you need to, anything that impedes your health or safety needs to be stopped at any cost, which is, if you think about it, for more than five seconds, absurd. It, it's patently absurd on its face. But uh, it, without thinking about it too much, it's easy to fall into the, but that's dangerous. Oh, ban it. Oh, but that's bad for you. Oh, tax it. Right? Oh, this could be dangerous. Oh, you know, protect, protect, protect. Um, which is the mentality behind a lot of policies that a lot of people accept, right? We didn't really talk about drug policy. We, we might disagree on it, but I think a lot of that comes from safetyism. Um, smoking policy, it's bad for you. That's basically what it comes down to. Uh, and uh, yes, it is, right? Uh, riding a bicycle without a helmet, uh, push that further, riding a motorbike without a helmet. I mean, a lot of these things come back to, uh, but that's not safe. And, and yes, it isn't safe, but life isn't safe, right? I mean, you know, no one gets out alive. Uh, and a, a nuanced understanding of life is that you trade off safety for other things all the time. All the time. You can't get through life without doing it. If you drive, you're doing it. So we all do it. Uh, but we live in an age now where the appeals to safetyism is very politically persuasive. It, it seems like, like a gut instinct for a lot of people. So obvious. It and takes a lot of pushback. This, isn't this a self-amplifying loop because the politicians get votes by appealing to promoting safety? And so they then amplify the message that we need to be concerned about safety. Yeah, well, remember, as I was saying before, the two big motivators is, is um, unrealistic hope, or any hope, but I mean, the best way to win that is to give unrealistic, you know, massive hope that everything will be perfect tomorrow, uh, and fear. And safetyism fits in with fear, right? You exaggerate the fear, then you offer to make them safe. It's, a, it's the one-two punch that works in politics. Uh, but it's, it's more than just the working in politics, because if it worked in politics, why didn't it work 100 years ago? And to some degree it did. Uh, but it seems to be escalating. And uh, part of this, I think, is, is an issue. I don't know how to fix this at all, but first to try and properly understand it. Um, it's like a, a safety inflation. We were evolved to have a certain degree of concern about the environment around us. If you didn't have that concern, if you didn't have that degree of fear, you got eaten by the saber-toothed tiger, right? I mean, you, you, it's evolutionarily helpful to be mm. a bit worried. As we've solved those problems, we've solved the saber-toothed tiger problem, that we've done through cultural improvement. Our genes don't evolve that quickly. So we still have this instinct to have a certain amount of fear, which was evolutionarily helpful without this uh, modern culture. But in this modern culture, we've kind of solved the saber-toothed tiger problem. We've solved all of the problems that justify the level of fear we have. But we've still got this built-in level of fear. So we now just direct the fear to the next thing, which is a smaller and smaller actual risk, right? The risk is getting smaller, mm. but we still need to direct our fear somewhere. 
So this, so goes this argument that uh, you're never actually going to decrease that fear, but you've got less and less to worry about. So you get this absurd safetyism, you know, worried about riding a bicycle without a helmet and, and walking down the street near, I, I don't know, I don't know what people are worried about next. It's going to be something absurd. Let's, uh, let's see if we can wrap this up with this question. And we may go on a uh, half hour rabbit trail, but to what extent would you agree with the statement that the libertarian philosophy or ideal, the libertarian appeal is essentially best appreciated by a more intellectual, more sophisticated thinking voter market and Mm. therefore inherently limited? Libertarians are snobs. Yes, I, I think there's a, there's an element of that. Um, there's a couple of sides. I mean, people have been scratching their head about this a lot for, for a long time. There's a couple of sides of this. Uh, one is a lot of people in Australia are, are born into uh, red or blue families, right? Just an instinctive cultural uh, family, culturally conservative family, or instinctively culturally Fabian, let's say, if we keep using my old term, uh, family. Uh, very few people are born into a, a libertarian family. Very few people are, go to a school that's just... Uh, where they're surrounded by sort of Tans Taffel and, and Heinlein and Rand. And, and that's not the norm for most people. So most people have to go as an adult, read some books their parents didn't give them, hear you know, dangerous uh, sort of... Uh, what am I looking for? Uh, ideas that sort of uh, undermine what they previously thought. And then they have a, like a come-to-Jesus moment. Not, not literally, not a biblical one, but a political come-to-Jesus moment. Um, and... Uh, that means that it naturally appeals to the people who spend a bit of time thinking and rebelling against the status quo. So people who don't think about it fall easily into their two groups that they started with. And so libertarians tend to be people who have uh, rebelled against that and come up with a new one. And they've overcome a previous belief. doesn't mean their new belief is necessarily correct, but it gives you a sense uh, that you are, you are one of the uh, sort of more intellectually nuanced people who's been able to overcome a previous belief. Mm. And it can create in some people, probably myself included, this sense of snobbery of, oh yeah, I used to think that. Um, the, the other part of that is um, maybe the ideas that libertarians promote are just so counterintuitive that it's hard to have people being instinctively libertarian. Uh, so maybe it's cultural in that people are just born into liberal and labor families. Um, or maybe the ideas are just too counterintuitive for people to instinctively think them. And if that's the case, it's really hard to imagine how the movement could ever... Uh, be huge. Certainly not in an election cycle. No, no. So the, I, I sometimes used to say one of the advantages America had, and this, is, this sounds a bit mean, is one of the advantages America has over the rest of the world is America has this unique beast called dumb libertarians, um, or, or thoughtless or libertarians, people who got there without really thinking about it. And that's because there is some culture there where you can accidentally stumble into the idea of just being the norm of you and everyone around you. The kind of uh, live and let live uh, Montana lifestyle if you, if you want. Mm. Um, it's hard to find uh, thoughtless libertarians. There can be pricks who are libertarians and dumb people, but in most of the world you weren't brought up that way. You had to have a conversion moment where you read something and had an aha moment and was sufficiently invested in political philosophy that you, you changed your mind. Mm. Uh, and I think that can end up making libertarians look like the, the snobby elitist group in the room. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. Not sure how to fix that one. Well, I, I think um, we're on a very similar trajectory in that I have no hope that the things I'm trying to achieve in culture are achievable in an election cycle. It really is the education of a generation of, of which we can only play whatever small part granted to us. Uh, and hopefully more and more people join that effort 
um, just to educate whatever circle of influence we have so that we can get a more educated demos um, resulting in a better quality of government, hopefully 20, 50 years from now. You might be more optimistic than I. I mean, I, I agree, short term is difficult. Uh, I'm not sure it's achievable long term either. I just think it's the right thing to do anyway. I think it's been done often enough. Um, uh, William Wilberforce introduced or was part of introducing what's now known maybe pejoratively as the Victorian era. Um, and that was a rehabilitation of a culture because England was infamously immoral prior to the Victorian era. There was a huge campaign for the restoration of oh. morals and sensibilities. So, but there was that cultural education, but it did take a generation. So I was saying about our respective areas of, of uh, primary right. focus. So I wasn't really talking about the cultural pushback. I was thinking my, my, uh, my campaign for smaller government, um, I sometimes look at that and think it's, it's not just one election cycle, it's a lifetime and, and right. more than a lifetime. At the end of that lifetime, it may not be successful. And I sometimes look at the incentives and I think it probably won't be. But nonetheless, I think it's the right thing to do. Mm. Uh, even if it never works, right? Because I, I think it's true and uh, you can only speak truth the best you can. Right? Yeah, definitely. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for um, joining me on Pillow Talk tonight. Thank you. And uh, where can people find more of you if they want to, uh, I guess, follow your musings in, in public, if there be such a thing? Well, I don't know if I got to pitch it before, but uh, if you want more discussion about libertarian issues or uh, libertarianism, writ large, the Friedman Conference coming up 9th to 11th of July in Sydney. So it's, it's back in person. Last year we had to go online. Yep. It's now into its ninth year, back in person in Sydney, 9-11. So it's alsfc.com.au, alsfc.com.au. Uh, that's for the Friedman Conference from the ALS, uh, Liberal Democrats, it's ldp.org.au. Uh, and that's probably good enough for the Centre for Independent Studies, where I'm a research associate. So cis.org.au. Brilliant. We'll put all those on the screen. Um, right now, but thank you very much for coming in today. Excellent, thank you. Well, that's it for this episode of Pillow Talk. And uh, don't forget, if you want to subscribe to our updates, head to goodsource.news um, and you'll be able to see recent articles, recent interviews, uh, and just in case we ever get kicked off social media, which is probably a when, not an if, make sure you are subscribed to our newsletter updates there. And as always, thank you very much to the Good Source supporters, people who voluntarily put their hand in their pocket and donate uh, weekly or monthly to keep production of independent voices, shows, articles and podcasts coming to you without paywalls. Hopefully we can keep that up for a lot longer. Um, and so if you'd like to be part of that, then uh, click on the supporter uh, link on the Good Source website um, and uh, join the Good Source supporters there. We uh, need more so we can continue to add more voices to the platform and uh, produce more content to disrupt the uh, powerful influence of the lying harlot media. But that's it from me tonight. Good night. If not now, then It's time for us to do something. Na, 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 na.